This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Fraser Miller says his first love was product management, which allowed him to focus on the customer. He brought that love with him as he moved up the corporate ladder, and he taps into it frequently when devising strategy as the CMO of Reich. On this episode of Marketing Trends, Fraser discusses why he thinks that focusing on product fit is such an effective marketing strategy. Plus, he explains what it means to work in a high-velocity business. Enjoy this episode. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce. We're bringing marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org, and we have in studio... Frazier, what's going on? Hey, how are you? Nice to be here. Great to have you. We're going to talk some fun stuff about the one essential skill marketers are missing, which Mm -hmm. I love. Uh, We're going to be talking about being a high-velocity CMO, what that means, building outbound motion, and much more. But first, how did you get started in marketing in the first place? I love it. It's like the drum roll. Um, Yeah, I've had sort of an interesting career, I think, getting to the CMO role, maybe a little non-standard. But my original job function and really love as a function was in product management when I moved to the Bay Area. I worked at BEA Systems when I first moved here, and then I was at Yahoo for many years as a product manager. And I loved focusing on the customer and um, building great products and really um, embraced that that function. And midway through my career, I had an interesting transition. I worked at SurveyMonkey for a little while with Dave Goldberg when he had taken over there. And SurveyMonkey was seeing a bunch of this traffic that they weren't capturing in and around online survey software. So it would be things like, what is an NPS survey? Mm-hmm. Or give me an example of a high school teacher survey, like long tail type queries, which they weren't ranking at all for. And so I came in really to help their product team figure out how to take advantage of that. And we ended up building a like a templates gallery so that customers could see a set of templates for yeah. different types of surveys. I've used it. Um, I've yeah, used many right. of those templates. Uh, right. And creating content strategies to help sort of explain. And the epiphany for me was that there's so many, so many of the marketing teams and sales teams are, are focused on the funnel, right? Getting prospects in the top of the funnel and converting. But that there's this real opportunity to think more broadly about the customer journey and really the prospect journey and how you can add value at different steps along the way. And so I think, you know, the common term now is like design thinking, the trending trendy term that that we use in marketing. But it for me, it was an epiphany of like, hey, I can apply these product management skills into marketing teams and maybe think a little differently about how how we can be doing marketing and sales. And so I pivoted my career at that point to work in more go-to-market teams and had an experience of, I've, I had an experience at Startup Bloomspot where I had to build a sales team there. So that was that was a year of fun building a, an outbound sales organization. Eventually settled on this, what I call high-velocity kind of marketing channels. I was at Articulate where I was um, held the role as COO and I ran sales and marketing Marketing was really the core of that experience and then um, eventually moved to Reich where I took the CMO role. But yeah, so it's, it's uh, for me, marketing and product management share a lot of commonalities. And, and I, I think the types of roles that I love and the businesses I love have, have that sort of product first orientation and then marketing's really partnering close with product. And, and that one essential skill, that design <laughs> thinking aspect, you know, I, I love that, and you wrote a piece on this, um, which I really enjoyed, which is this idea that, you know, you can't necessarily just have, you know, right message, right customer, right time. You need to have, you know, this design thinking. What was kind of the epiphany there that you saw of, of seeing this need? Yeah, I think it goes back to understanding some basic principles of understanding customers and I'd say prospects as marketers we're really a lot a lot of what we do is thinking about prospects but 
you know, what does design thinking for prospects look like? If we just ask, ask that question, it really, it focuses you on what are the opportunities to provide value with someone that you don't already have a paying relationship with or some sort of relationship with. And if you, if you kind of like put it in those term design thinking, we spend a lot of time with customers, with our products and delivering great products and services, you know, once we, once they're down the funnel right in there, but if you really to force yourself, like before they're in the funnel, how, you know, what are the ways that we can, um, you know, we can add value. An example that just pops to mind at Articulate, we serviced instructional designers. E it's the e-learning profession. We've all taken these courses and generally they're painful. They can be painful to, to go through these courses. Oftentimes they're compliance driven yeah. and legal teams putting them out or whatever. And, the, and once you get into the course, it's like they're rate limited. So you can only get through, you know, slides so quickly. You're just waiting to get to that quiz to get through it. And it actually ended up being this amazing market to sell into because those those customers, those prospects, are very aware. They're teachers, basically. They're trying to create great materials for their students. Yeah. And they're very aware. They get the feedback all the time from their students of like, can you build more entertaining e-learning? Because it it blows. Yeah. And so we we sort of just took the uh, approach of like, hey, let's be the empathetic brand for these instructional designers. And what are the what are all the ways like we can help just in this profession? Of course, we have software that can help build you know great e learning, but but there's a lot of things way upstream that is needed. We did a ton, we invested a ton in the content team, the community team, to create best practices and tips around this. I mean, this you know kind of standard standard operating procedure for a lot of businesses today. But you know one of the one of the things that that we built there, um, we spent a lot of time on the community and creating that community that was branded separately from Articulate. But one of the things in the design thinking realm is these instructional designers are constantly trying to find their next career in the next post and or their teams may be growing and they're trying to post. There was, there's no real job board for instructional designers. So we built a jobs board as part of e-learning hero and it was one of the most successful things we did. It had, you know, not a lot to do with selling e-learning software. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's the idea of like, what, how would we design something to really help add value as early as we can in, you know, in this segments or in this target group's lives? Yeah, I think about that a lot with like this show. And uh, we got a, we just recently got an email from one of the listeners that they listened to the episode with Katrina Wong, the VP of marketing at Hired. And she's like, oh, yeah, her husband's an engineer. And, uh, like you should go check out Hired, and her husband got a job from listening to Marketing Trends. But <laughs> yeah. I always, I always think about that stuff, and I talk to producer Ben about this about like how do we make it like more than a show? Like, yeah, people come listen for the marketing content. Mm. Uh, you know, mm. they stay for the relationship, mm. stay for the friends along the way. But, but I always think about this like just because you're making something that has one use, like people are going to use it for whatever thing that they want. Maybe it's a you know companion to hang out with and, and talk about marketing, but maybe it's like to get a job or maybe it's, you know, you coming on the show to, to, you know, find jobs for your friends or, or whatever it is. And I always think that like marketers kind of need to stretch what their thinking is of like what the tool that they're creating and how people are going to be solving it, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. I think, you know, I think being creative about what the, what category you're in. And I think there's always opportunity to, kind of bring heightened, like a heightened awareness or definition around who you're serving and what value you're playing. Or and, what they need. But this yeah. is one of the things you were saying with the job board. And one of the, one of the big takeaways from, you know, our first hundred episodes of Marketing Trends was your company has advantages, has like little secrets and things hidden that like nobody knows about, usually by your customers mm -hmm. or how they use the product or whatever it is. But you can share those with the world and it makes killer content. Yeah. Like those are the type of things where it's like, well, the thing that's really useful to your customers was like this job board. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm thinking of a great example, for example, because uh, data, you can do this a lot with data. A lot of these companies are, especially in high velocity, where you have tons of customers and lots of data flow in the systems, that can be extremely useful. Obviously, internal, but also externally. I'm thinking about that you know, that famous blog post or site that MailChimp put together on open rates, email open oh, rates. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you've probably seen it, right? We've all, we all looked at it at the day, but they had enough 
data to understand sort of by industry, by by campaign type, what you would expect to see open, you know, open rates, email open rates to be. It added a, a ton of value. It created, put a lot of people in the top of the funnel, so to speak, or maybe they weren't in the funnel, but it was just good, you know, goodwill towards the um, the industry. And so I think there's a ton that companies can be doing with data if they think about that and how to how to push that out to help help their their category. Yeah, we spoke to Ryan Benici, the CMO of G Two Crowd, about this about one of the tools that he created, which like, I, and I always am fascinated by marketers creating tools in like as part of a campaign, mm-hmm. like actually just build the thing, like mm-hmm. build whatever it is. I, I love the, the, the clicks, um, CPM calculator. Like mm-hmm. how many times have I used that CPM yeah. calculator? Yeah. And it's like, like stuff like that. I just think is so easy to do, like to execute once you have, but it's not always obvious, right? No, yeah, it's not yeah. always obvious. You got to sort of think, think a little bit outside the box. Um, and like have the capacity to do it, which is the other thing. Yes. Um, to like have someone on your team. So you need low code tools um, <laughs> to be able to build that stuff. So you mentioned high velocity. So like, what do you mean by a high velocity business? Yeah. So I'm, I'm a big fan of this segment and in a lot of ways. I've focused my career in what I think of as high velocity businesses. And you can think of these as channels if you're a larger business, cause you have multiple channels, but most of the companies I've worked with are, are startups or scale stage privately held. And you've got one primary way you're going to market, but these high velocity businesses in, in my mind tend to be, tend to have the characteristics of a lot of volume coming into your site or into the top of a funnel. There's various ways that that happens, but tend to be high volume. They tend to have low price point in terms of the product or service that you're offering. They tend to be very product oriented. Customers tend to like know if you take kind of SurveyMonkey as an example, you know, customer, they did exceedingly well ranking both organic and as well as paid on online survey software. That became a big category, lots of search intent around it. But it was sort of very product-oriented journey of trying to understand what are the features of this relative to other competitors out there, and they they also tend to be they tend to be churny businesses, right? They're sort of like large, oftentimes you're serving kind of bottom of the pyramid or value-oriented customers, and yeah. um, easy to buy, easy to leave, easy to buy, right? easy to leave, right? So the the relationships can be or at least start out in a kind of tentative way. And it's funny this you know I, if you rewind the clock. A few years ago, these businesses were, when I was working at SurveyMonkey, for example, there was a lot of question marks about whether this part of the SaaS segment would ever succeed. There weren't really any examples. I mean, you had the Salesforce, you had this sort of enterprise software, large ACVs, you know, significant relationships, but the these lighter weight relationships really weren't of favor. And I think it's interesting now with Zoom coming out, Slack coming out. Um, the success of, you know, MailChimp, there's a bunch, you know, there's a bunch of really great uh, companies now that are in this, what I see is like a high velocity business. Well, and I think, you know, a lot of the episodes that we do on the show are around B2B and a lot of those conversations historically are top down driven, like institutional change type products. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these are like bottom mm-hmm. up, mm-hmm. you know, user group, segment group, things mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. um, small group of people. So it's like, and then the CIO wakes up one day and is like, wait a second, like how many licenses do we, are we <laughs> yes, selling to yes. this? Like, right. we, we have like 35 licenses, but it's across 10 different teams. Like what is, what's going on? Here? Yeah. And you're right. It's, it's just a very different thing. You know, I think as I think about some of the industry trends, obviously the advent of the internet and online buying has really shifted way people purchased before when Benioff was starting his business. There wasn't like the prevalence of everyone getting all this data and buying online. And so you had to make a giant claim in terms of here's the category we're going after is very top down. But, you know, certainly the the advent of, of that, I think also a lot of these products just becoming a lot better to use and easier to use and easier to try out. And, um, you know, Slack is the poster child of like consumerization of the enterprise, a great, elegant product. Stuart had built two B2C, you know, companies beforehand and really had that product sensibility, bringing that into the enterprise has helped. And then I think also, you know, we've had the 
the SMB, the kind of SMBs coming online or sort of purchasing software at an unbelievable rate, right? 10 years ago, they were just buying QuickBooks and maybe a couple other point solutions. But now you have SMBs who really see the value of a bunch of different. So I think all of these are contributing to like giant opportunity for these high velocity businesses to be more successful. Well, and I think you have like platform plays and multiple play, like obviously, you know, Salesforce, uh, who sponsors the podcast and we love them, but you have like app exchanges and you have like all these other things. So you can plug into, you know, things like that. And then you have other companies who have platforms. And then you also have like best of breed services where it's like, you can, you can plug certain things in, you know, in, in other interviews where you talk about like this idea, it's like, Hey, if you want to go try some, you know, new MarTech or whatever it is, it essentially just plugs right into all of the stuff that you're already doing with yeah. integrations and APIs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like you can get it up and running right yes, away. Right. Um, and like that stuff didn't all yes. like the yeah. the architecture yeah. didn't exist. That's right. And one of the definitions I put out there, this piece I just wrote was that the the, the services or configuration is basically non-existent or yeah. very lightweight. And that's an important point that you can easily on board and get this thing up and running. On the on the flip side, you're right, these businesses aren't easy to th- th- there's downside too, right? That you mentioned the relationship with the customers can be more lightweight. People can get in and out a lot quicker. So you, it, it churn is a real thing on these businesses. And that was one of the reasons why a lot of people felt like you know, this segment's not can't take off is cuz their too gross churn was too, you know, was too too loud. But yeah, I mean, I think uh, Jason Lemkin talks about like there's no such thing as churn. There's just people who quit your product. <laughs> like, like it's not, it's not. There's, it's not this giant. Like, it's not a. You know, you're not churning butter. It's like literally just people quitting you. Yeah. Um. And I, I always think that that's a, a funny way of looking at it. But because you have a price point potentially that's extremely low, and the uh, you know cost to join, like the whole lean startup 101 for so long was like make sure that someone is buying your stuff. They mm-hmm. will actually give you dollars mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. But it's like when your price point is $7, you know, or whatever it is, then they can try it really easily. And it's actually not like they're really spending that much money. Yes, technically they need to like swipe their credit card and things like that. So I'm curious, as you have, you know, built multiple high velocity businesses, how did you approach that from a marketing standpoint? How did you get that person? How did you identify those folks that it's like, they're not that serious of a buyer? Like, what are the gates that they need to go through to be like, oh, this is a serious person? Because when you're projecting churn to, you know, as you're a CRO, COO, to the CEO or to the board, and you're saying like, hey, we sign up all these people, but you're like, this segment of, you know, 17% of these people I can tell pretty quickly that they're actually not serious buyers mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. long term yeah. or whatever. I'm just yeah. curious, how did you look at that? Yeah, I mean, I think you sort of, my mind sort of immediately went to um, sort of where yours did, which is understanding different segments within your population. And I think that's a key element of success for high velocity businesses is that you're going to get a lot of people in the funnel it needs to be that way for it to be high velocity and for for the low price points to work. And really understanding all the different, they're not all going to be one flavor, right? You're going to have different um, types of people and you can end up fretting a lot with this percentage of customers that come in and like, don't do what they're supposed to do in the product. Don't get it up and running. And, you know, it may, it may be that th- that segment is not a good fit, right? You should fire those customers that let that type of mentality of like, we don't care about these customers, but it's these other customers, which, you know, they do do the right set of things, but then they're like week two, they don't get back on, but they've invited the five friends and they showed initial interest. That segment is really important for us to go after. And in fact, it's like onboarding, we got to do a better job with onboarding these guys. They don't have the tools to really know how to get to the next step. So I think that's, you know, that's one element of it. And, and thematically, I think in high velocity, it's a very data oriented world and having the kind of discipline to build that metric orient. I mean, it's sort of, you know, 
overweight sort of all talk about data orientation marketing, but but really in the high velocity one, you have the, enough scale oftentimes in these businesses to be able to take kind of a data oriented approach. And two, it ends up being really important to understand what's happening with your business, to have that business operations function that is segmenting your customers, understanding, you know, CAC to LTVs by segment, you know, by channel, by ad group, and really understanding where are you picking up valuable customers in your acquisition attempts? What are the opportunities to, you know, plug plug the funnel as you go down? Because they tend to be leaky funnels. And, uh, and who's going to not just stick around, but evangelize and upsell and cross-sell? You have to really understand that whole picture, and it looks very different across segments of customers. What I'm curious, like, we've seen a lot of kind of like this anti-funnel mentality. You have obviously like the, the kind flywheel. Of, yeah, yeah, flywheel yeah. or like even inbound or, you know, flipping your funnel, you know, rise of ABM, things like that, which for a high-velocity business, like, does that stuff make sense? I think, yeah, you know, yes and no. Um, I think there's a lot of merit to the flywheel. I think the constructs are mainly important to emphasize a point, right? That it's not just like a linear path. To me, the flywheel is like, it's not just a linear path from start to finish. And there's multiple ways that you need to think about the relationship with the customer. There's a couple things that I think to touch on there. In high-velocity businesses, you do need, if we take more enterprise software approach, they call new logo acquisition, right? You yeah, don't use yeah, that in yeah. high-velocity businesses. But you need a lot of new people coming in just to, I think, to continue. I think of these businesses as engines, and like the engine has a big acquisition component to it. You're sort of, it needs fuel to come in in the form of leads and top of funnel. There's lots of ways to drive that. But, but the funnel construct I think works well for that acquisition side and really thinking about the ways that people are leaking out and being on top of your conversion rates. And there's a lot of science there that kind of makes sense for high velocity. I will say though, an important, a super important element that we touched on was that it's it's leaky not just through the funnel, but post transaction as well. And this yeah, is exactly. basically churn. Yep. And so that's where this kind of the idea of the flywheel, which is there are these periods, onboarding period is something that I think a lot of marketing teams kind of miss because they pitch it over to CS or expect product to handle it. But marketing, totally. I think, really needs to be focused on that first 30 days and 60 days and all the data supports that. And then upsell. That means a lot of the businesses will be monthly plans, but I think more and more the high velocity can do annual or some mix of both. And making sure that you, a lot of times your price point in unit economics for a, a one-year deal or to stay on the base plan or heaven forbid if it's freemium, the CAC to LTVs don't work really well. So you really are counting on that expansion. And, you know, the, one of the motions that is, I think is really popular and makes a lot of sense is this land and expand emotion for high velocity businesses. Yeah. So that's where the marketers really need to think about it as a flywheel. And a lot, one of the mistakes I see a lot of these businesses making is just focusing on the funnel of the acquisition and not thinking about onboarding, not thinking about expansion. Marketers tend to think about evangelism, which is like, what are our key customers and how do we get them out talking to people, which is part of a, a longer relationship. But um, so I do think there's there's a lot about the flywheel that that works in high velocity. Well, I think also high velocity businesses, you have things like G2 Crowd and all sorts of Owler and whatever else. Accelerating word of mouth is like a huge piece of this, because if you're in a high velocity business, by and large, like you have a you know, blank point blank out of five stars somewhere on the internet that someone mm -hmm. is going to be looking up. Mm -hmm. you. It's mm -hmm. not necessarily like, you know, enterprise like Gardner or Forrester yes. or whatever yes. it is. Like, yeah, people don't care. They're like, do other people like this? And then they're going to ask their their friends and colleagues. And I don't know if I stole this or not, but I always think about it as like, you know, if, if you're spending 90% of your resources on acquisition and then 10% of your resources on retention, it's like, you're probably going to get really good at acquiring people and really bad at retaining people, mm -hmm. right? Like, mm -hmm. it's just a function of, you know, organizational effort. And I think that that was kind of one of the missteps of a lot of that stuff, which was kind of this idea that you could say, well, we'll probably get better at, you know, retention because we could like work on that. But we need to invest on acquisition. And mm -hmm. it's like, it's, you know, and it might be true for some businesses and not true for others. Did you find that 
there was a way to accelerate word of mouth to, and even before that, to like accelerate adoption uh, from a marketing standpoint by investing like time or resources into that piece of it versus just on like the acquisition. On the you're saying on the word of mouth and referral, like how do you drive that? Well, like how do you well, how do you even get to that? Yeah, like right. how do you get from yeah, yeah. like you know yeah. close deal yeah. to even that point? Because that's the chasm, right? Yeah. It's like once they're ready to you know give a referral, it's like they're probably pretty ready. Yeah. But yeah. getting through to that part yeah. is really yeah. difficult. I mean, I th- I think one thing I'd say is that so much of this this sort of goes back to my career paths i think I, I believe so much of the success of these businesses come back to, comes back to product is the product a delightful experience and i think as much as marketers we you know can can market in and around that there's orders of magnitude you know impact of having a great nps score versus like a not great nps score so yeah. that sort of goes without being said but i think you know as i think about my career, I try to really look at what are the product dynamics here and are customers going to be delighted and love this? Or is there some segment of customers that's going to be delighted and love this? And then I think, you know, I think marketing's job is really to, to one, make sure you understand your USPs and where you differentiate so you can get those types of customers in, right? So marketing's role is to really be smart about where is this going to fit? Where is it going to be this, the segment or the population that's going to be delighted by then? And then being able to, to tell that story. And I think part of what I see as the marketing team job is to get them through that prospect journey, queued up for having a great experience, and then, and then making sure that you don't drop the ball post-transaction, which I see time and time again where you're not one that organization's not clear about the role product is playing versus CS versus marketing. Yeah. And where does education go? And marketers, you know, another example of things that I think we don't do well is marketers will tend to want to tell customers how things should get onboarded or how they should use the product. You send them an email sequence, you build a university that has great videos but it's so much more compelling to do that in the product. How many people go to the university totally. and like listen to the all the videos on how to do it? You have to be really motivated to get this up and running. And there's all these opportunities within the product to do that. But the product managers aren't usually thinking about that first experience and that out-of-the-box experience. So, so this is all by way of saying getting across that gap you talked about from a new customer to someone who's willing to refer and an- evangelize, but doing the basics there that make sure you're getting the right types of customers and they're as successful as you can get them to be in that first period of time, I think is a lot of the battle. Well, I think I'm just curious how many people are marketing post-sale about marketing adoption things instead of just marketing by now. Because that's what I think is so, like I get an advantage to interview a lot of people and products, many of which we use here at Mission. And what's funny is like you learn things about the product when you're talking to people in the company sometimes. And like most people don't have time for that. But I always think about like certain features that are fun. And actually, you know, we've talked you know, about Slack a lot, but one of the things that Slack does great at is all these like little weird things that mm-hmm. happen with Slackbot or whatever it is. Promoting those is like keeps it front of mind. It keeps it top of mind. I'm just curious, like how much marketing budget is not spent on evangelizing post-sale like implementation type things? Because I think that those sort of things like are kind of like the heartbeat of of the product in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. it's like, I, I don't know. I I think that there's there's something there that I don't really see a lot of, but there are ways to get in front of your customers, you know, even in just your regular marketing activities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what you're highlighting is the the I'd say the marketing and product relationship from a functional standpoint, yeah. as well as just from a um, sort of who's doing what. But it oftentimes is. That PM that has a natural sense of marketing um, savvy of how are you know how is this product going to sort of show itself up on in a demo for example or how do you add that whimsy right that Slack did where it's going to be you know compelling really early on in your like first showing how people use the products like I always we we talk about 
our Slack channel, hashtag dogs admission. That's like all the photos of all of our employees, mm-hmm. dogs and stuff. And now that our customer success manager, Catherine now is a wag walker. So she shows other dogs now, which uh-huh. is pretty great. But <laughs> things like that, like little ways that other companies use your product that are fun or cool or creative or cool companies that do that to show like, oh, hey, I use the product and I don't do that. Like, yeah. oh, you know that product that we don't really use that much, like that I was thinking of canceling? Like, I didn't realize it did this. Like little things like that, little reminders. And the reason why I'm getting to this is like, there are marketers who are listening who don't have a high NPS, who don't have... Mm-hmm you know, as high of a score on something like G2 crowd mm-hmm. that don't have those advantages mm-hmm. and can't tout that. Well, what can you tout? Like, mm-hmm. what are the things where can you fight and win on something that can keeps you front of mind for people who have already bought uh, so that they don't churn out? Yeah. I think there's a lot of opportunity, you know, that, that marketer, what we're highlighting here is there's a lot of opportunities that, of putting stuff into the product that will help gain traction, right, with a with your customers or a core segment. And, you know, sometimes those are whimsical. Sometimes they're just super useful, right? Really nailing some pain point that that your customer base could have, going back to the jobs board as an example. It wasn't even in product, right? But it's really understanding the customer and what are real needs that they have that no one else has has serviced. And and I think, you know, so part of this maybe is back to what we were saying is being creative thinkers as marketers of how you define your journey, you know, and, and there's stuff in the product you can do. And there's, there's perhaps stuff outside of the product, which marketers will be able to control, you know, more of. One of the reasons I really like these high velocity businesses is because marketers, we haven't talked about sales at all, you know, <laughs> today, what are we you know, 30, 30, halfway through this um, interview, we haven't talked about sales and, you know, I, I have a high degree of respect for sales teams and I think they really play an important role in most of these high velocity businesses. But one of the reasons they're great for marketers is because marketing is driving, you know, so much of the revenue and you can sort of track marketing's influence from the very early days through to not just transaction, but also cross sell upsell. And you kind of have to do it that way. Cause it's a more, efficient spend typically than, yeah. you know, hiring, hiring people. And so back to the point of like marketers need to see themselves as driving, you know, in these types of businesses really have a, have a role, um, to play within the product strategy and with the CS strategy and with your operation strategy and with finance. And one of the reasons I've gravitated to these businesses in my career is because you have to be, you have to be able to think really in all these dimensions of the business to be, I think, to, to be successful. And so, so anyway, back to your point, I think mar- marketing, you can't just get off the hook by saying, Hey, our NPS is low, you know, in these, yeah. in these types of businesses, it's like marketing's got to own, why is it low? And how can we be doing a better job of getting the right customers in and building the right product? Well, let's figure out how to get some new logos in. Let's build some outbound motion here. You know, if like, I have a magic wand, because I host the show, so I do. And uh, I'm going to make you CMO of, of a new company. Like, how would you look at building an outbound motion, creating strategy around this, evaluating different channels uh, and all that? Yeah. So I think, I mean, let me maybe define the context of outbound because it can be, I think at a new company, outbound motion, I'm not sure that I'm the right guy to go well, solve it's that, but new. it's, uh, what's that? This company, we're making this company up, but it's been around, yeah, I don't yeah, know, yeah, some yeah. amount of yeah. years. I guess, you know, here's what I know about Outbound because Outbound's, I think, a, a very deep topic. In a lot of these high velocity businesses that I've been part of, you get to a point where you've hopefully grown nicely and your growth path is doing well, but you get to a point where it's either the investors will come in with this idea or you need another gear in your in your engine to to increase growth and so inevitably it comes back to sort of out hey let's do outbound right everyone's the current thing and it it's something that sounds good and is sounds easy to do but i I, my experiences has been it can be very hard to especially if you're in a business that has this current motion that's inbound focused and very sort of driven by by marketing to layer on a real outbound it reminds me of the Motion. car, the like the sport, or maybe it's not a sports car. In this case, we'll say it's like a conversion van, but it's like a van, and we're rolling really. We're going eighty miles an hour, 
and then you have the big ramp and you drive off the ramp and you land on like the tanker that's like out at sea that's yeah. like going to take you out. Yeah. And it's like this car that was like that flying landed. super yeah. fast and you hope that you land. But if you land on it, like everybody gets out and you realize you're like, we're actually going pretty slow right yeah. now. <laughs> um, and it's like, we were just going super fast and we had all this control and we could move the wheel. This is on the fly, by the way. This is a great yeah, analogy. It's, yeah, it's good. Um, I like it. But, uh, but yeah, that's kind of what it yeah, sounds no, like you're to right. me. You're right. Yeah, so yeah, you got a high velocity motion of this like fast, like race car that's landing on a kind of tanker, right? That that's hard to get up and running and going. I think there's a lot of merit to that analogy. I mean, a few things that I would say in my experience with, with outbound, you have to be, um, I'll, I'll share this experience. You probably heard this from others, but one of the company I was at, we, had a low price point, high velocity product. It it was being bought up in a lot of Fortune 100 companies, and we when we went and looked at like, hey, let's go do outbound. We saw Fortune Company X. I remember it was Accenture in this case had like 100 installs of our product, mm -hmm. and it was like, this is a you know this is a great opportunity. We just need to go find the right C level person and tell them like you were you know you want to buy our enterprise license. So we went out and. We hired some folks and we tracked down the right decision makers and had the conversation with them. And they said, wow, we have 50 licenses here. It sounds like we should be getting a discount. <laughs> and to which we said, well, don't you want some more licenses? And they said, well, I don't really know, but like we're spending a lot with you guys. You want to like have a discount. So the purpose of the story is like it was a margin contracting exercise, right? Yeah. Our outbound motion was actually doing the exact opposite as we wanted to do. And, and my takeaway with that was you need to know you have a product that you can sell and that sustains the economics you need for outbound, which is very different. And one way to think for marketers to think about this or businesses to think about it is like you're almost in a way trying a new product market fit. You have product market fit, right? With a certain yeah. market or certain type of buyer, but don't fall into the trap of saying, oh, well, we just need to go apply some like SDR resources into this and like we'll be able to sell it, you know, way higher up the food chain. You really need to go back what we did in this company's case. We went back, we had these conversations like what would an enterprise product look like that would help service? No surprise. It was a lot of administration capabilities. Yep. It was a lot of security a lot of the illities that you talk about. And so we went back and took about 12 months. It was over a year to build a Teams product. It wasn't even really a full enterprise product, but we created a product roadmap and we put the brakes on our outbound efforts until we had that product. And then we went back out and it was much more productive and it's much more strategic to be like, hey, you have these 50 licenses. Wouldn't you like to manage these? Because you have people leaving and the licenses are just sitting on the floor with, you know, this, the unspend, you'd love to like reassign them to someone else. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Okay, well, this team's product is 40% more than our base product, right? So that you have the economics that su support the go-to-market motion. I love that story. That's great. And I it reminds me that a lot of times when you have the high-velocity business, that you kind of just like, you know, slap on the sales team, the commission structure, and all that stuff, and you're like, like you said, it fundamentally changes the unit economics of the product. Mm -hmm. And it's like, wait a second, like, you know, we're doing 10% out the door every time we sell this, plus floating those salaries, plus like whatever, like, wait a second, like. We have to be selling this at 10 times what we're currently selling, right, to make this work. And yeah, it's, you're yeah. like, wait. And then it's like, we were priced in the market at this point for X, Y, and Z. Did we forget why we were kind of priced at that point yeah. or whatever? Yeah. Were there any other mistakes that kind of like happened around that as you structure? I mean, it's clearly you had the ear of a lot of important people during that conversation, but were there any fights that you had to kind of deal with with, uh, with that restructuring or figuring oh, that I out? I mean, yeah, I think one of the things I counsel folks, in, especially in these high-velocity business going outbound, is you have to be patient with it. It's And, and you have to help set expectations of the board because there are some companies who have the right product that they can do this, but all, we know all sort of products aren't created equal. And so you just, the bottom line is it's going to take longer than you think, and it's going to be more expensive than you think. I think as a, as a CMO, be very careful 
before you go sort of proposing that this is a, a solution for your growth woes, unless you really know what you're talking about, because it's going to take a while to find the right next motion to go after. There's a lot of heartache about that. I think the philosophy of starting small and trying to test a couple of different small motions to see if those are working, I think is makes a ton of sense. So you don't get over your ski tips and, uh, and, you know, make promises you can't, you can't deliver on. One of the ways it tends to be easier for high velocity businesses to, to go outbound is really focusing on the land and expand. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a, it's kind of a semi outbound and a lot of people will define it as outbound, but it's really not because you're working with an existing count footprint. It's kind of what we did in that example that I, I brought up, but it's a, it's a softer way where you already have a relationship and hopefully the product is doing well. You have metrics to be able to see that and then being strategic about what are the expansion strategies for us to be able to move into other parts of the company. And that that can be a lot easier. The challenge with the board I have found is it's hard to measure like what is really outbound. And so we I spent a lot of cycles with CFO and the boards like okay, this incremental dollar that we're spending to try to sort of find this other motion. Well, you deployed it with an existing count that already was happy with our products and was eager to introduce you to other people. Like that's, that doesn't, that, that doesn't feel outbound to me. Yeah. No and kidding. So, it's not. Yeah. yeah and so, and, and it's, so then, it's definitely not cold. That's for sure. Yeah. It's not cold. And so in this example, we spun up a separate group and was one of my learnings just to be able to make sure you're testing, you have the right sort of experiments set up is that is like, okay, we're going to get a, a named logo list of no one that we is on our list right now. It's going to be this type of ICP. We kind of figured out our ICP and it was a much more traditional, like outbound mm -hmm. approach to it. And that was freaking hard. I mean, it was yeah. just hard, um, especially when you have a low price point product and you're trying to convince them to buy a thousand of these seats, not just, hey, because the conversation inevitably is like, I see in her site, I can get going with five seats here. Um, so it's, you know, anyway, I think that the, the learning is being really clear about the type of outbound you're going after, trying to be smart and intentional about what has the greatest chance of success and setting up your tests in a way that just like, here's what success looks like. We're going to spend this amount of dollars. We expect this amount of like incremental ARR. Maybe it's to come out of existing accounts and it's an expansion strategy. But um, Well, and that's, that's where you say, you know, hey, maybe we repurpose two product marketers as sales reps yeah. and and a b test those two people yeah. uh, or customer success people or whatever they were and like let them try to sell the product to new accounts yeah. Yeah. like to brand new accounts instead of like build hiring a head of sale or yeah. vp of sales yes. right. and you know five regional managers and like segment the entire world and like do all that sort of stuff yeah yeah and try right. to boil the ocean yeah and it's like, there's lessons there. I remember one of the mistakes we made was when we started going outbound, you know, the natural thing is, well, let's find our best sales guys that are killing it on our inbound side. They know this product so well. And like, let's put them on some big accounts and go whale hunting. That was like the worst thing to do because we took our best guys yeah. and put them into like, a, you know, a totally different motion where they're expected to have conversations with a completely different level. Super long person, sales cycle. Super long yeah. sales cycle. And it sounded cool because the commissions are super big, but they were the, they, they were not the right people to do it. They ended up falling on their face, you know, and so you're taking your best people and then hanging them out to dry. And so it was like, okay, you go back to the job you're good at. We need to hire some people who have done this before. And, and, and then it's, you know, then it's challenging because you are, you're spending capital, you're hiring people, you're creating teams that is, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to get those experiments up and running. There's a lot at stake. The other thing that you may have talked to other CMOs about, but I've found to be really valuable on outbound is marketing, owning the SDR. Yeah. So I know there's a lot of debate on that. My quick summary for that would be, I think SDRs as part of the marketing organization, the advantages that I see is perhaps most importantly, the, you know, sales and marketing are always trying to work more closely together. When you have the SDR function in marketing, it really forces that, that tightness that you need for, um, for marketing to be able to try to launch messaging with SDRs, SDRs trying it and like not working and being able to come back and talk to marketing is like, this is not working at all. Email cadences is another great thing. We have all these great tools like outreach and others that lets 
SDRs and sales send email, but marketing typically, especially if it's in a different organization, has no idea like what's going out the door and like what's working and how do we A-B test this. So by having the SDRs, we tried it both ways, but having the SDRs in marketing really, again, if you think of this as product market fit, you don't really know where the product market fit is with this new segment you're going after. Having that fast cycle time and that tightness of execution, I thought was much better done in in marketing than uh, than in sales. Yeah, I mean, when we were, we were talking to the, the Pardot folks about like, you know, like intelligent lead scoring and all the cool stuff with AI and all of this. And it's like, I think it's, however you figure out how to like, you know, split the band or whatever it is that, mm-hmm. that you do, mm-hmm. it's so clear that like the rubber meets the road at the SDR function. Like, yeah. I mean, we all get hit up by SDRs all the time. It's like super freaking annoying. So it's like, if you're losing institutional bandwidth on just annoying people, like that ain't good. <laughs> like if, you know, so, and then conversely, it's like, if you're, messaging doesn't align and you're using, you know, that type of structure on like, you know, extremely important accounts or whatever it is like. Yeah. It's just, yeah. it's a, it's a tricky piece yeah. to, uh, to get right. Yeah. Uh, super hard, super hard to get right. And, you know, the counter argument, the SDRs is their career path is on the sales side. So sales wants them. And I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. They're not going into marketing, but I think you can still keep the career path into sales, but have them sit in marketing. So you have your dailies every day, you know, really making sure you're not burning these great customers, making sure you're not annoying people and really getting marketing kind of skin in the game and the motion. I mean, and I think that the reverse is also true. It's like maybe, I mean, we, we've talked about like, you know, the ability to do ride alongs and things like that, but it's like, Probably having sales sit in on marketing and marketing sit on say, sit in on sales yeah. like more often yeah. is good in yes. general, anyways. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like training, you know, salespeople who have a clue about marketing is great, and and vice versa is great. Like yeah. if your product marketers aren't sitting on sales calls ever, yeah, and you don't hear how your customers talk, like that, that's not good either. Yeah, yeah. I wish CEOs really understood that better because you get on a job, you know, and it's like you want to perform right away, and really marketing should go should just spend a month carrying quota, you know, trying right. to get uh, ramped up. You will learn, you have such a better perspective, right? When you do that and vice versa, but it's, you know, everyone nods their head. Yeah, that's the right thing to do, but then no one really makes it happen like it should. All right, let's get into lightning round questions. These questions are fast and easy, just like marketing automation with Pardot. You can go to pardot.com slash podcast, learn more about B2B marketing on the world's Number one CRM, that is Salesforce. We love Pardot. I always say we love Pardot. It's not even in the read. I just love them. Shout out to our friends at Pardot. If you haven't checked them out, go check them out. They support the podcast. Instrumental to the podcast. Lightning round questions. Frazier, are you ready? Yes. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? Um, I'm liking Calm right now. Ooh, Calm's great. Favorite vacation spot? I just went to the Dolomites in Italy with my family. Can't recommend it highly enough. Great vacation, great hiking, and um, amazing food. Favorite thing to cook or eat? I guess I'll go with salmon, fresh-caught salmon. Favorite book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? I am reading These Truths by Jill Lepore. It's a great book about U.S. history. Hidden talent or passion? I am passionate about kiteboarding. I guess it's not too hidden. I love paint. I love paintball. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> Best advice for a first-time CMO? Focus on the mission. Not this company, but like the mission. Of that yeah. yeah. <laughs> not my I company. love your guys' name, by the way. Thank you. Um, yeah, I just think mission is, as a CMO, to be able to come in and really embrace and extend the mission gives you a lot of power and aligns you with the company and makes your team feel great. That'd be my top top piece of advice. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? How should I raise three boys? How should you? <laughs> a lot of sleep. Make sure they have enough food. Would them get a lot of sleep or you get a lot of sleep? Well, both, ideally. (laughs) 
Uh, usually it's not me getting a lot of sleep. It's the boys getting sleep, making sure they have enough food and keeping them off the technology in their phones. Uh, good advice for anyone, actually, all of those <laughs> things. Uh, well, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for, for stopping by. We had a bunch of stuff we didn't even get to, but yeah. uh, next time. Um, any final stuff to plug or anything our listeners should check out? Uh, no, I don't. It's been really great. Look forward to our next visit together. Awesome. Take care. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. Discover marketing built on the world's number one CRM, Salesforce. Put your customer at the center of every interaction. Automate engagement with each customer and build your marketing strategy around the entire customer journey. Salesforce, we bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.